0: Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast that explores how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brain makes us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 164. This is our 13th annual review episode. I will be sharing highlights from episodes released in 2019 and I will close with some important announcements about what to expect in 2020. As always, you can find complete show notes and episode transcripts on my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, post audio feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis and of course post to our Brain Science Podcast fan page on Facebook. So my usual format is to give some brief highlights from every episode. This year I'm going to do it a little differently because I'm going to start by reviewing the first seven episodes and then I'm going to focus on the last four which was the series about consciousness. So the first episode of the year was an interview with Dr. John Dowling about his latest book, Understanding the Brain from Cells to Behavior to Cognition. This episode was kind of a blast from the past because it's the first time in several years that I've featured a book that was totally aimed at non-scientists. It was also kind of special because I featured another one of Dr. Dowling's books way back in Episode 3 of Brain Science, back when it was called the Brain Science Podcast. That was before I started doing interviews. Dr. John Dowling has been teaching and doing vision research at Harvard for many decades. And in this interview, we focused on his most recent book, He mentioned that this is basically a rewrite of a book he wrote back in the 90s called Creating Mind. He explained that he was writing for students going into non-science fields because he feels it's important that they get a sense of what is going on in neuroscience. In his overview, he said that he had tried to break the material into three sections, neurobiology which is what's going on at the level of the neurons, systems neuroscience, and then cognitive neuroscience, which is the higher functions. I especially appreciate the perspective Dr. Dowling shared from his many years in the field. For example, he mentioned how psychologists once viewed the brain as a black box, but imaging has changed this attitude completely. Overall, Dr. Dowling's view seemed to be that progress in neurobiology is quite advanced, but that systems neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience are becoming increasingly important. We focused a little bit on vision as an example, but for today I just want to mention Dowling's interesting answer to my question, how are neurons different from other cells? He pointed out two key differences. Neurons have an absolute requirement for oxygen, and they have an inability to replicate. I was surprised that he didn't mention their ability to transmit electrical signals. This led us to talk about how neurons actually use both biochemical and electrical means to communicate. One of the best things about this episode is that it contains something for everyone. No matter what your previous knowledge of neuroscience, you are likely to either learn something new or be reminded of important ideas you haven't considered recently. Next, in episode 154, I talked with Dr. Alan Castell about his book, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging. This was actually one of my favorite episodes, even though I suspect many of you are reluctant to listen to an episode about aging. First, I assume that anyone listening to this podcast appreciates the importance of brain health to successful aging. The good news is that the research of scientists like Dr. Castell is revealing that there is a lot we can do to maintain that brain health. We can't prevent many of the changes that are inevitable, such as decreased reaction times, but most of us can learn to compensate and to build on our strengths. The most important idea in this episode is that successful aging is not something you do in your 60s or beyond. It's highly influenced by the choices you make in your 30s and 40s and even when you're younger because habits, both good and bad, are hard to break. Dr. Castell talked about some of the key elements of successful aging and he emphasized the importance of exercise and maintaining social contacts, preferably with people across a wide age range. The most surprising discovery that he shared was that regular walking actually causes the hippocampus to grow. This is a big deal since the hippocampus is vital to forming new memories. There's also evidence that people who walk regularly have better memories, not to mention feeling better in general. So if you can walk, do it. And don't forget the importance of balance. When Dr. Castell talked about his habit of spending time balancing on one leg or the other while brushing his teeth, I was reminded that several years ago when I interviewed Dr. Michael Merzenich, who is one of the pioneers of brain plasticity, he said that we should look for opportunities to walk on non-paved surfaces to keep our balancing muscles tuned up. With regards to the importance of maintaining social interactions, preferably of the face-to-face kind, Dr. Castell emphasized that people need to choose something that they actually enjoy. Some people are content to spend time with their family, while others prefer book clubs or playing bridge. The choices are really only limited by our imagination. But just like we have to start exercising sooner rather than later, we shouldn't wait until we are retired to begin cultivating our social support system. If you are a young person and you're thinking, well, none of this applies to me yet, I want to encourage you to turn things around and ask if there's an older person that you could connect with, perhaps as a role model. Likely, you will both benefit. One of the things that I love about my job at the Veterans Administration Hospital is having the opportunity to work with younger physicians. I love teaching and sharing stories, and I feel grateful that medicine is a field where experience is still valued. So I think Dr. Castell's book, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging, can be enjoyed by readers of all ages and would possibly make a good gift. In episode 155, I talked with Paul Middlebrooks from the Brain Inspired Podcast. This is my first interview with a fellow neuroscience podcaster. Paul's show explores the interface between neuroscience and artificial intelligence. In the interview, Paul gave us a brief introduction to deep learning, which is really hot right now. And that's a topic I think is fascinating, and I would love your feedback about whether you'd like to learn more about it on this show. Paul and I explored the question of how neuroscience and artificial intelligence inform one another, But I think an important take-home point is that although AI is used to mimic or exceed human intelligence, it doesn't necessarily solve problems in the same manner. Some researchers take a purely engineering approach. Let's solve the problem without regard to what the brain does. But others are hoping that the two fields can continue to inform one another. Of course, one big challenge is that both fields are highly technical with their own jargon, making it difficult for those in neuroscience to keep current with AI and vice versa. This challenge faces all attempts at interdisciplinary science. One reason that it really matters is that people end up duplicating work that's already been done. Another hazard is basing one's efforts on an outdated theory from another discipline. Several years ago, I talked with Greg Hickok about mirror neurons, and he shared the example of how neuroscientists were trying to use mirror neurons to explain a theory from linguistics that had actually already been discarded. So in this episode, we have a brief introduction to deep learning. But another thing I like is that Paul shared his own personal journey we don't usually get to hear from people who have left academic science, but Paul's story reminds us that the decision doesn't necessarily reflect a lack of passion for scientific discovery. Quite a few science writers are former academics, and of course I know of a few other podcasters who are working scientists like Pamela Gay from Astronomy Cast. I hope that Paul is one of a new breed that will join me in trying to share science in a way that captures the true depth while keeping it accessible to most listeners. If you haven't done it yet, I encourage you to take a listen to Paul's podcast, Brain Inspired. So before I talk about the next episode, I want to just comment about the importance of listener feedback. Over the years, listener feedback has been the thing that has kept me going, especially in those times when I had thought about quitting. I do listen in terms of finding out what topics people are interested in and how to improve the show. So please do send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. So in episode 156, I had Dr. Russ Poltrack the author of The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts. This was a fairly technical episode about what functional MRI can and cannot tell us about how the brain works. Dr. Poldrack has been in the field since its inception, so he brings a very valuable perspective to the discussion. After we talked about the basics of how fMRI works, we discussed the ongoing question of what activity in any particular region of the brain really means. Showing that a certain area lights up when a person is feeling fear, for example, doesn't prove that that brain area generates fear. Remember that correlation does not equal causation. Dr. Podrak said... The important takeaway is that just because we see stuff that lights up when people do our task doesn't necessarily mean that our interpretation is the right interpretation, end quote. FMRI has been plagued by problems with how to use statistics correctly and how to make sure that one is measuring something real rather than just random noise. Fortunately, this is an area where a great deal of progress is being made. However, if one intends to work in this field, there is a great need to develop solid skills in statistics and programming. In his book, Poldrack was extremely candid about his own mistakes, and he mentioned one particularly important incident during our conversation. We also talked about how the field has been addressing many of the concerns that people like William Utah brought up. Overall, the data being generated now is more reliable. This is one field where one should be very skeptical about older studies. Can fMRI be used to determine what a person is thinking? From my point of view, the good news is not really. Here's what they can do. They can make recordings while someone is viewing different types of objects and then use those brain patterns to predict what sorts of objects the person is imagining. But in general, they have to make recordings from the person before they can generate the predictions. For example, if a person's got locked-in syndrome and they make recordings, what they'll do is they'll have them imagine that they are doing two very different activities. For example, imagine that they're playing tennis or imagine that they're walking around their house and then after the training period, they can have them imagine those opposite activities to represent yes or or no answers to questions. The trickier part, of course, is when they use the tool to determine if a person who appears to be totally comatose actually has some awareness. Although this is fairly rare, a significant number of patients have been found who are able to generate some activity when they're told to imagine doing a well-defined activity. This is a long way from predicting what a person is thinking, and as Poldrak pointed out, it seems to be the most accurate when it's applied to the visual domain. Another important issue is the ongoing push to use fMRI as a lie detector. If you are curious about why this is not a good idea, despite the claims of celebrities like Dr. Oz, I highly recommend you listen to this episode, 156, and read The New Mind Readers. As an aside, I will also mention that the standard lie detector or polygraph test has been totally discredited, even though it continues to be used in very critical situations. Fortunately, the courts now appear to be sensitive to the danger of accepting new methods uncritically, and they have some very reasonable criteria that must be met. Since fMRI continues to grow in popularity, it is important to regard new claims critically, but at least now there are people in the field like Russ Poldrack who are working to make sure that their results are more reliable. I do want to mention one other key idea that I expect we will come back to in 2020, and that is the ongoing move from focusing on where to patterns of connectivity. For example, Podrack mentioned a researcher who can predict if a person is looking at a face based on the overall activity of their brain. His method works even if the fusiform face area is removed from the data. So, the move is from a focus on single modules to the connectivity of the overall brain. This was a fascinating discussion that I think should be fairly accessible to listeners of all backgrounds. <music> This month, our sponsor is BetterHelp, an online counseling service that features 3,000 counselors in 50 states. You can schedule sessions via secure video or phone, and you can go at your own pace. These are licensed counselors that specialize in a wide variety of issues, and of course, everything is confidential. If you aren't happy with your counselor, you can change free of charge. Online counseling is private and confidential and less time-consuming than traveling to someone's office. You can do it from anywhere in the world. And BetterHelp does have financial aid for those who qualify. But note that this is not a crisis line. BetterHelp is offering a 10% discount off your first session if you use the discount code ginger g-i-n-g-e-r so to get started today just go to betterhelp.com forward slash ginger when you go there you'll fill out a questionnaire to help them figure out your needs and get you matched with the right person that's betterhelp.com forward slash ginger In episode 157, I talked with Dr. Donald Mackay about his book, Remembering What 50 Years of Research with Famous Amnesia Patient HM Can Teach Us About Memory and How It Works. This was a fascinating book and a fascinating interview. Donald Mackay did his first experiments with the famous patient HM back in 1967 when he was a grad student, And he made a startling discovery. He discovered that HM had some remarkable language deficits. My first reaction to reading this was that it implies that the hippocampus is more important to language than is commonly assumed. But if you've never heard about these results, you are not alone. First, we have to put these early experiments into the context of their time a time when the brain was seen as extremely modular and the assumption was made that the hippocampus was solely involved in memory. The possibility that it did other things was not even considered. Secondly, there was already a widespread assumption that HM was a pure amnesiac with totally normal language skills. So when Mackay made his unexpected discovery, he was essentially told to ignore the evidence and move on. This sort of story appears over and over in the history of science, and it is a reminder that the real practice of science is a very human endeavor. During the interview, Mackay shared a few highlights of how he finally uncovered the apparent role of the hippocampus with regards to language, as well as why people thought H.M.'s language skills were normal. Most of his deficits involved novel situations and seldom used words. So it was not apparent in day-to-day conversation where he could get by with cliches. We actually see the same thing with dementia patients who can mask their deficits in a similar way. Mackay spent most of his career studying how language skills change in people as they age. He found that people actually tend to forget words that they don't use frequently, but that the hippocampus seems to allow them to repair their memories. This conclusion is supported by the fact that HM demonstrated the same sorts of changes at a much earlier age. Mackay has also developed an alternative theory of learning that he calls the integrated learning theory. The basic idea is that all memories are formed by repetition, but the hippocampus speeds up the process. An interesting piece of evidence comes from a variation of the famous mirror drawing experiment. This experiment was generally assumed to prove that procedural memory does not involve the hippocampus. In the famous version, H.M. was able to learn to trace a star in a mirror, even though he had no memory of learning to do so. One element that is typically ignored is that it took him three days to learn what a normal person can master in about an hour. This inspired Mackay to modify the experiment. He had normal people learn to draw mirror drawings of squares. The advantage of this simpler shape was that they were able to explicitly describe the rules involved. What he found was that people who did figure out the rules were able to master the task more rapidly, but interestingly, their awareness of the rules faded as the task was mastered. Unfortunately, Makai was never allowed to try this modified aversion with HM. Another aspect of the experiment was that when people started out using their dominant hand and then they changed over to their non-dominant hand, there was a residual training effect. This goes against the idea of so-called muscle memory. So Mackay's theory is that early on, higher-order thinking is involved in forming a procedural memory, but that once a skill is learned, it becomes unconscious, in the sense that we don't remember the rules we followed while we were mastering the task. To me, this makes sense intuitively. Just think about learning how to ride a bike or play a sport. Studying language in people as they age is a great way to study memory because word use is more similar between people compared to, say, their episodic memory or memory for facts. There's also lots of data about how frequently various words are used. Thus, Mackay was able to observe that it is the rarely used words that are forgotten. However, if one has a healthy hippocampus, the memory of a rarely used word can be repaired or rebuilt. He emphasized that this is a valuable asset that we should cherish. Of course, we reviewed the evidence that exercise is also essential to a healthy hippocampus. Mackay called exercise a sort of miracle. Remembering was written in a very personal, unacademic style Mackay approached the mystery of H.M.'s language deficits like a detective and explains how he unraveled the evidence over a period of about 25 years, but his book also is jargon-free with frequent interludes intended to encourage the reader to apply what is learned to maintaining their own brain health. I guarantee that no matter how many books you might have read about H.M., this one will surprise you. In episode 158, talk with philosopher Patricia Churchland about her latest book, Conscience, The Origins of Moral Intuition. This was Dr. Churchland's third appearance on brain science. So for the sake of new listeners, we started out by talking a little bit about her classic book, Neurophilosophy, when it was published in 1986, Churchland proposed something that was considered quite radical at the time, the idea that neuroscience should inform the study of the mind. There is an entire sub-discipline of philosophy called philosophy of mind, but most of its practitioners continue to believe that the best way to understand the mind is via reason and introspection. I was actually surprised when Dr. Churchland told me that this is still the dominant viewpoint, especially among English-speaking philosophers. She mentioned Daniel Dennett as typical of the view that the mind is the software and the brain is the hardware. As I was preparing for this episode, I realized that that actually might be an important clue because when we use a piece of software on our computer, the hardware doesn't concern us. But is this really a sensible way to think about the mind? Proponents of embodied cognition argue that the mind is deeply embedded both in the body and in the world. We haven't talked about the embodied cognition approach for several years, but I'm planning to return to embodied cognition in 2020. However, I have to say that I agree with Dr. Churchland when she said, quote, Whatever the self is, it's something that is a construct of the brain. End quote. Before now, let's return to our review of Dr. Churchson's interview. She shared that her passion is discovering how discoveries in neuroscience impact the big philosophical questions. Over the last decade or so, she's been particularly fascinated by the nature of morality. She reflected that the two traditional sources of morality, have been assumed to be either religion and or human reason, but she finds both of these to be inadequate. As far back as Aristotle, there have been people who searched for what we would now call an evolutionary explanation. When we talked back in 2012, Dr. Churchland introduced us to the idea that morality's origins may lie in our social nature. Her interest in this approach was sparked by the famous experiment comparing the prairie and montane voles. I still remember her talk about this in her plenary session at the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience back in 2008. An endocrinologist named Larry Young discovered that the difference between the monogamous prairie voles and the promiscuous montane voles came down to the receptor density of a particular neurotransmitter that is similar to oxytocin. In her new book, Dr. Churchland explores the question, why are most mammals social? Two things set mammals apart. They are warm-blooded and their brain has a cortex. The layer structure of the cortex is considered an important advance, even though it appears that birds can be very intelligent without a cortex. Being warm-blooded allowed early mammals to forage at night. This was critical in the early days when they were very small and the dinosaurs ruled the earth. But warm-blooded animals need to consume 10 times as many calories, which means that they can't go days and days without eating like reptiles can. One way to get more calories is to be smarter, but this led to being born immature. Churchland argues that taking care of the young is the origin of social behavior. One final thought is that while science can answer questions such as how our brain works or maybe even how we became moral creatures, it cannot tell us what is right or what is wrong. However, as Dr. Churchland pointed out, Science can help us to determine the potential consequences of our choices. In episode 159, I talked with Kevin Mitchell about his book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. The key idea here is that much of our behavior is innate, but this is only partially due to genetics. There's a gulf between discoveries in developmental neurobiology that focuses on exploring the development of nervous systems in animals like flies and mice and the discoveries of those working in psychiatric genetics. Oftentimes the two fields do not talk to each other. But one important discovery is that many of the genes that appear to be important in psychiatric illness are actually important for development. The genome contains instructions about how to build a brain, but it's more like a recipe than a blueprint because no two brains are identical, not even those of monozygotic twins or identical twins, even though they have virtually identical genomes. So why is this true? Two reasons are, random events during development, and spontaneous mutations. So it was previously assumed that anything that was not genetic was environmental, but the evidence does not support this assumption. In fact, when it comes to behavioral traits, the impact of environment is surprisingly weak. Even more strange is that it seems to diminish with age. For example, IQ seems to be somewhat affected by environment and children, but the effect disappears in adulthood. Another potential confounder is the fact that personality traits interact with the environment. Parents react differently to children with different personalities, and people make choices based on their personality. We also talked about the role of plasticity. Plasticity is something of a two-edged sword. One point Mitchell emphasized was that despite... Being largely innate, intelligence is increased by education. We can all learn new things and expand our behavioral horizons. But the darker reality is that the more we choose environments that fit our particular temperaments, the more ingrained our behavior tends to become. The idea that innateness goes beyond genetics is simple but subtle. I certainly can't do justice to it in this very brief review. So I want to mention that Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are by Kevin Mitchell is a highly readable book appropriate for readers of all backgrounds. It's also available on Audible for those of you who prefer that format. So before we move on to the last four episodes of of 2019, I want to share a few Few final reflections on the first seven months of the year. We started the year with John Dowling and something of a general overview since his book Understanding the Brain was designed for is intended for a general audience. Dr. Dowling and I both agree that having a basic understanding of neuroscience is become becoming increasingly essential whatever field one enters. Next, we talked about the psychology of successful aging with Alan Castell. No matter what your age, you can benefit from remembering these two keys to success, positive attitude and moderate exercise like walking. Then we talked with Paul Middlebrooks about the intersection of AI and neuroscience. In this regard, I would like your feedback about whether you'd like to hear more about topics like deep learning my conversation with Russ Poltrack about his book, The New Mind Readers, was a valuable update on fMRI. And I consider this recommended reading, especially for anyone who's expecting to use this tool in their work. Donald MacKay's book, Remembering, was probably the biggest surprise of the year. But I have to thank Alan Castell for recommending it. It was fascinating to learn about H.M.'s unusual language deficits and even more interesting to consider what this means about how we learn. This is another book I highly recommend to everyone, but unfortunately it's not available in audio. Of course, I always enjoy talking to Patricia Churchland because she always explains her ideas with in such a clear and entertaining manner. And I appreciate the critical thinking she brings to her analysis of the neuroscientific literature. It was interesting that she said that if she was choosing today, she would definitely go into neuroscience rather than philosophy. Finally, my conversation with Peter Mitchell, author of Innate, is an important reminder that Our understanding of the relative roles of genetics, development, and environment will continue to evolve as scientists continue to develop more sophisticated tools. Another issue he brought up was the importance of developing a broad knowledge base so that one doesn't end up, quote, reinventing the wheel, end quote. One thing that I've learned from the extensive reading I've done since I began exploring neuroscience back in 2003 is that... Neuroscience needs to be informed by discoveries in a wide variety of fields. Some are obvious, like molecular biology, genetics, network theory, and the tools of computer science. But other fields, like anthropology, evolutionary theory, and even philosophy, have potential value. Neuroscience itself is incredibly broad, And I know that I can only provide a mere sampling of its diversity. In the last half of this episode, I'm going to review the key ideas from my four part series about the neuroscience of consciousness. But first, I want to thank those of you who have supported my work financially in 2019. There are several ways to support brain science. There's the premium subscription, there's Patreon, and you can also do single donations via PayPal or Venmo. To figure out which one of these is best for you, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. So the last four months of the year, we spent with a four-part series about the neuroscience of consciousness. We started with episode 160, in which I provided an overview of several recent books. As with the overall series, one of my goals was to give listeners a sense of the diversity of the interpretation of current neuroscientific evidence. However, I started out by mentioning what all of the counts that I chose to include here have in common. They agree that consciousness requires a brain... Consciousness is a product of evolution, and consciousness is embodied. Although there is a broad consensus about these principles, I have to admit that what I consider to be a broad consensus also represents the explicit biases that I bring to the conversation. In episode 160, I started out with a pretty detailed discussion of Stanislaus DeHaan's 2014 book entitled Consciousness and the Brain, Deciphering How the Brain Codes Our Thoughts. I did this because it provides an important foundation as well as an introduction to one of the major current theories. DeHaan starts out by providing a valuable historical overview of why consciousness was considered unapproachable by science for literally hundreds of years. The reasons were both philosophical, and technical, but obviously the tide has turned in recent decades. Dahan, like many of his contemporaries, did not start out studying consciousness directly. Instead, he spent many years determining that many activities that were assumed to require consciousness can actually occur without conscious awareness. This was very fundamental to his subsequent work. Then, when he was ready to tackle consciousness in the laboratory, he realized that three elements were essential. He needed to have a clear operational definition of consciousness. He needed a method to measure consciousness experimentally. And there was going to be a need to respect the subjective experience. So he chose to measure conscious access as a fundamental first step. This meant presenting constant stimuli in a way that they were not always consciously perceived. This was done by presenting stimuli for about 50 milliseconds because that's the spot at which people may or may not perceive a stimulus. Visual stimuli are the easiest to use for a number of practical reasons. Dahan and his colleagues then demonstrated that while the sensory cortex always responds, there are other EEG signals that appear only when the person consciously perceives the stimulus. From this, they developed the key ideas of what's known as the global neuronal workspace theory, which is a form of Bernard Barnes' global workspace theory. In their version, when a signal passes a critical threshold, it gets transmitted or broadcast throughout the brain and then enters conscious awareness. Some other researchers consider measuring such access consciousness as inadequate because it doesn't address the importance of self-awareness. But DeHaan wrote, quote, being aware of myself could just be another form of conscious access End quote. He also pointed out that when we're listening to music or deeply engrossed in any activity, self-awareness seems to disappear. But that doesn't make it the person unconscious. I really consider Consciousness in the Brain by Stanislav Haan to be essential reading, not just because it provides an overview of decades of experimental work, but also because it emphasizes several key ideas. The first one is most of what our brain does is not accessible to our conscious awareness. Also, he emphasized that no amount of introspection is going to tell us how the brain works. DeHaan also gives a good explanation of why most neuroscientists reject Freud's account of consciousness. And he points out that despite the enduring myth, Freud did not invent the unconscious. In discussing Freud, Hahn also emphasized that any scientific theory of consciousness must be put to empirical testing. And in that context, he mentioned several other theories that failed to stand up to experimental testing. One was the idea that the cortex is the seat of consciousness, because it turns out that all parts of the brain can participate in both conscious and unconscious processes. Another was the idea that just the left hemisphere is conscious. This was disproven in the experiments with split brain patients. There's also the idea that only certain regions of the cortex are conscious, while others are not. Again, it's more of a global phenomenon remember again that all the areas of the brain can participate in both conscious and unconscious processes. Of course, that doesn't mean that they're all equally important. Certain brain areas are essential in the sense that if they're damaged, consciousness is no longer possible. But the key idea is that no one area of the brain creates consciousness on its own. In episode 160, I also had a discussion of Antonio Damasio's most recent book, The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. Damasio expands on his own particular theory of consciousness as previously presented in his book, Self Comes to Mind, which I discussed in great detail back in episode 92. Damasio defines consciousness as mind plus self which narrows his view of consciousness down mainly to humans. But the main point of the strange order of things seems to be to argue for the primacy of emotions. Damasio also emphasizes the importance of the brainstem nuclei. It's interesting to note that despite his emphasis on the importance of emotion, Damasio does acknowledged that the term limbic system is outdated and should be avoided. In fact, although he shares the evolutionary viewpoint of his colleagues, Damasio argues that affect and emotion preceded the evolution of consciousness. This was the view of the late Jacques Panksepp. Damasio also argues that embodiment is an important element of consciousness. And although many neuroscientists seem to agree that machines could be conscious someday, Damasio sees this as fundamentally impossible. Another book I discussed in episode 160 was Daniel Dennett's From Bacteria to Bach and Back, The Evolution of Minds. Daniel Dennett is a philosopher who has been prominent in philosophy of mind since he published his well known book Consciousness Explained back in 1991. I actually went back and reread From Bacteria to Bach and Back because Joseph Ledoux mentioned it in his latest book, which I'm going to discuss shortly. Reading Dennett is difficult. I think his goal in from bacteria, Bach and back was to demonstrate that consciousness is a product of evolution and to explain why he thinks it's hard for people to accept this. But he also has some opinions that to me seem a little extreme. For example, he calls consciousness an evolved user illusion. He seems to argue that we needed to evolve the ability to have internal thoughts mainly so that we could deceive others. On page 343, he wrote, quote, The practice of sharing information in communication acts with others, giving and receiving reasons, is what creates our personal user illusions, End quote. Dennett writes that the brain creates an edited version of our experience so that we can share this with others. He seems to discount our obvious need to interact with the world, as well as the survival value of social interaction. Of course, Dennett also offers his usual scathing critique of qualia. He views qualia as unnecessary to the explanation of subjective experience. Perhaps in the context of describing consciousness as a, quote, user illusion, end quote, he is really trying to emphasize that we don't have a direct experience of reality. Initially, I found this very puzzling, given that this idea seems rather fundamental from a scientific point of view. But I finally come to realize that the reason he is arguing so strenuously is that many philosophers still seem to accept the view that first-person experience of consciousness is a fundamental given. I'll try to come back to this slippery idea in my discussion of episode 163. I want to briefly mention the fifth book that I discussed in episode 160, which was Consciousness Demystified by Fonberg and Mallet. The main reason I included this book is that it contains two key ideas. First, it offers a brief overview of the evidence that primary or sensory consciousness exists in all vertebrates, arthropods, and some cephalopods like octopi. For a more detailed discussion of these arguments, I refer you back to episode 128, where I interviewed John Mallet about their previous book, The Ancient Origins of Consciousness. Any discussion of the neuroscience of consciousness should acknowledge the growing evidence that consciousness is more widespread than was once assumed. But the real goal of consciousness demystified was to address the issue of subjective experience, or qualia. They present something which they call neurobiological naturalism, which they claim addresses the shortcomings of John Searle's biological naturalism. In Consciousness Demystified, the problem is broken down, and they even argue that qualia can't be viewed as a single thing, because once we acknowledge that conscious experience is widespread, we also have to realize the subjectivity that we experience is different from that of another species. For example, my dog can experience red. But for us non-philosophers, the bottom line is that qualia or subjectivity is built into to being alive. One final issue that I addressed in episode 160 was why most neuroscientists and physicists do not take quantum mechanical theories of consciousness seriously. This was addressed by both Stanislav DeHaan and also by physicist Sean Carroll in his book, The Big Picture on the Origins of Life Meaning in the Universe Itself. The bottom line is that the brain is much too warm. Quantum computing is only possible at a very, very low temperature. The other more basic objection is that like most macroscopic systems of everyday life, the function of the brain appears to be adequately modeled using classical physics. The overall goal of episode 160 was to give you a sense of the diversity of the ideas being explored. Most neuroscientists agree that the brain is necessary for consciousness and that consciousness has evolved. The importance of embodiment is more contentious. So my preference for the embodied approach reflects a personal perspective that can actually be traced back to my interview with Rolf Pfeiffer, co-author of How the Body Shapes the Way We Think. And that interview happened back in episode 25 in 2007 and looking back over the transcript for episode 160 i realized that it does contain quite a large number of errors and i'm going to be working on correcting those errors so if you've got a bad version of the transcript and want me to send you the new version be sure to email me at brainsciencepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com I want to take a moment to tell you about one of my favorite apps. It's called Text Expander and it's available for Mac, Windows, iOS, and even Chrome. You create snippets of just about anything that you can think of and then you can easily insert them anywhere, including web browsers, email, social media, and so much more. No more typing the same thing over and over. Text Expander is especially useful for sharing your favorite links. If you haven't tried it yet, just go to textexpander.com forward slash podcast to get 20% off your first year. Be sure to tell them that you heard it on Brain Science. That's textexpander.com forward slash podcast. Before I talk about the last three guests of 2019, I want to mention briefly how I chose these guests. My primary objective was to share several diverse viewpoints because I want to emphasize that although neuroscientists are united in believing that the brain generates consciousness, they sometimes come to very divergent conclusions. So in episode 161, I talked with Dr. Joseph Ledoux about his new book, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. Ledoux is well known for his work with fear conditioning in rats, but the first thing he emphasized both in his new book and in his interview was that the amygdala is not the seat of fear. Instead, he sees it as part of what he calls a survival circuit. In fact, he argues that the ability to sense danger goes back to the very first single cell organisms. Ledoux also argued that we can't extrapolate feelings, emotions, or even thoughts from observing behavior. While many of us might disagree, his argument is supported by the recent discoveries that human behavior can actually occur non-consciously. This has been documented repeatedly in well-controlled experiments. Ledoux made the point that while we make assumptions based on the fact that other humans have the same sorts of brains... We really don't know what they are experiencing unless they tell us. Ledoux is very clear about his position. He is not claiming that other species are not conscious or that they don't experience emotions. But he says we don't have any way to know if they do. His position is that we should assume a behavior is unconscious unless proven otherwise. Since Ledoux is so well known for his work with the amygdala, I want to review what he said about its function, specifically in humans. He said, Even though fear is totally correlated in many of our encounters with danger, it is not necessarily the case that the amygdala is generating that fear. So we've come to associate the amygdala with fear because of the behavioral responses, which sort of hoodwink us into thinking that the feelings must be there too. End quote. Ledoux argues that the amygdala is important for responding to danger, but not for the experience of fear. His position is supported by the fact that some patients with damage to the amygdala are still able to experience fear. But what about the idea that emotions begin in the subcortical circuits? This was the position of the late Jacques Pancset and has been adopted by Antonio Damasio. When I asked Ledoux about this, he, his response was that these subcortical circuits are all survival circuits that influence behavior directly. After saying that the amygdala is kind of a code word for defense, Ledoux also said, quote, we have to be careful when we talk about brain areas as if they do something. They don't do anything End quote. He went on to talk about the importance of the connections or circuits between neurons. He was very explicit when he said, quote, I don't think that the basic emotion circuits are emotion circuits. They are survival circuits. End quote. He also remarked that, quote, what's universal is the ability to detect danger. End quote. One might wonder why Ledoux is so passionate about his alternative viewpoint regarding the amygdala and its role in emotions. Ledoux is very concerned about the clinical implications of animal research. He points out that drugs that seem to reduce anxiety in rats don't really work in humans, probably because they're targeting behavior without having any impact on the emotional experience. If this aspect of the conversation interests you, I would also recommend his last book, Anxious, where he discusses this in even more detail. Beyond that, Ladue wanted to share what he calls his two radical ideas. One, that cognition evolved before emotion, and two, that emotion is not a product of evolution. Ledoux shares Lisa Barrett's position that emotions are cognitively constructed based on experience. During the interview, he also talked about the possibility that unique features of the human prefrontal cortex might make emotions possible. In this book, Ledoux lists about 20 theories of consciousness and expresses his preference for a version of one that's called higher order representation of representation theory, or horror for short. However, the main reason I included Ledoux in this series is because of his position about the role of emotions. Ledoux and Damasio seem to represent opposite extremes, with Damasio arguing that emotions were fundamental to the evolution of consciousness, while Ledoux argues that emotions might even be one of Stephen Jay Gould's extaptations. I agree with Ledoux that there are hazards in extrapolating from behavior. I also agree with Damasio's argument that valence or value existed from the beginning. A purely cognitive account of emotions seems to ignore this element. Even so, if you missed it, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to Brain Science 161 with Joseph Ledoux. Next, we'll talk about Michael Graziano's book, Rethinking Consciousness, a Scientific Theory of Subjective Experience. When I first interviewed Dr. Michael Graziano several years ago, we talked about his book, consciousness and the social brain, I think this was in 2014, that's when he introduced us to his attention schema theory, which basically says that there are specific circuits in our brain that attribute consciousness to others, and also probably more important, these same circuits tell us that we are conscious. The theory is called attention schema based on the analogy to the much older concept of the body schema, which is the idea that our brain builds a simple model of the body. As Graziano points out, a basic principle of control theory is the need for a model of the thing to be controlled. Graziano proposes that the brain needs to model attention because it's a limited resource that must be carefully allocated or controlled. Modeling attention led to modeling of consciousness because the two usually track very closely. When it comes to social interactions, being able to monitor the attention of others is critical to predicting their behavior. Working with this attention schema model led Graziano to a key insight – the reason consciousness feels like something non physical is because the brain has no reason to model its own role in creating and controlling the process. To me, this is a beautiful answer to the hard problem of why consciousness feels the way that it does. Likely you had one or two reactions to this idea. Either you thought it was beautiful in its simplicity, or you resisted it completely. Why do so many of us cling to the idea that our first-person experience is special and fundamental? Consider a simple analogy. Consider the true nature of color. Color doesn't exist out there in the world. The experience of color is generated by our brain. The proof of this comes from the fact that colors we perceive are not reliably associated with specific wavelengths. When the true nature of color was discovered, many people resisted it because it went against their experience. What I like about the attention schema theory is that it fits the growing evidence that the brain generates our experience, but it doesn't tell us everything. When we consider that most of what our brain does is also inaccessible to conscious awareness, we are forced to realize that no amount of introspection is going to tell us what is really happening. One other point I want to emphasize is that although Graziano's approach is information-oriented and somewhat computational, it is not incompatible with embodied cognition because he also acknowledges that the information processing is not limited to the brain. It also occurs in the spinal cord and for the case of movement, even in the muscles and connective tissues. If you want to learn more about the attention schema theory, I highly recommend reading either one of Graziano's books, Consciousness and the Social Brain, or Rethinking Consciousness. The latest book is really aimed at non-scientists, so if you want all the nitty-gritty details, especially the specific neuroanatomy, the older book is, is probably the way to go. Of course, both books have lots of references to the relevant journal articles. So we finish up our series on consciousness with an interview with Christoph Koch, who I first interviewed way back in episode 22 when we talked about his very technical book, The Quest for Consciousness, a Neurobiological Approach. He actually introduced us to integrated information theory when we talked about his last book, Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist, So it was only natural that I would ask him to come back on to talk about his brand new book, The Feeling of Life Itself, Why Consciousness is Widespread But Can't Be Computed. Integrated information theory proposes that consciousness is fundamental. So it's not surprising that early on, Koch said that conventional neuroscience, including his own work with the neural correlates of consciousness, does not answer the question of why experience exists. Koch explained that the essence of IIT is measuring causal power. Something is conscious if it has causal power over itself. He said that this is causal power in the Aristotelian sense. If I understood him correctly, this is also what distinguishes the theory from panpsychism because IIT always measures the local maximum. So, for example, the total phi, P-H-I, of the brain takes precedence over the small amount that any single neuron might possess. Koch also described the zap and zip technique that's being used to determine whether people who appear to be unconscious are actually conscious. Using this technique doesn't necessarily imply accepting the entire theory, but it does imply that a certain... Brain response is more likely if the person is conscious, but perhaps locked in. One concept that we really didn't address in the interview was why current computers are not conscious based on this theory. It seems to have to do with the fact that the actual interconnections in a brain are much more complex, and that this complexity goes beyond just having feedback loops. Even though I don't really embrace the idea that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, I think that integrated information theory has a lot to offer both clinically and in terms of future developments in artificial intelligence. Even though Christoph Koch believes that consciousness is fundamental, he emphasized several times that it is a natural phenomenon. So I think he would agree that the consciousness that we experience is an evolved phenomenon. So this has been a really long episode, but it's been a good and fruitful year. I do want to make a few additional comments about the neuroscience of consciousness because I've gotten so much feedback on these episodes and I know that people want to know something about my own opinions on these things. So as I look back on these three distinguished guests, Joseph Ledoux, Michael Graziano, and Christoph Koch, my first impulse is to compare and contrast their viewpoints. Joseph Ledoux argues that cognition came before emotion. This contrasts sharply with writers like Antonio Damasio, who regard emotion and feeling as fundamental. In contrast, many writers ignore the role of emotion completely, and they still have very different approaches. Dr. Michael Graziano sees consciousness as something our brain generates to help us interact with the world, including other people, while Christoph Koch feels that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, even though he comes short of endorsing panpsychism. There are at least 20 theories of consciousness, but as Dr. Graziano noted, they are converging on growing on the growing experimental evidence. Koch expressed the hope that the collaboration between those who support global neuronal workspace theory and those committed to integrated information theory will eventually falsify one or both of these theories. I'm going to close by sharing my personal attitudes about the subject. I'm going to do this mostly because, like I said, I've had listener requests, but also because I want to acknowledge that my biases affect the content that I choose to feature on this show. First, I'd like to mention that my interest in consciousness is actually what drew me to neuroscience over 15 years ago. I'd been exploring Eastern philosophy for about a decade and I felt I I had hit a dead end because there seemed to be an unbalanced emphasis on ancient wisdom without any mechanism for incorporating new scientific discoveries. So I started reading Western philosophy for the first time. This led me to philosophy of mind where I discovered that there were a few writers like Patricia Churchland who were actually interested in what neuroscience was discovering. I soon realized that there was no need to believe in a non-physical mind or consciousness because neuroscience appeared to be discovering the origins of many experiences that previously appeared to be unexplainable, for example, the out-of-body experience. So you might say that early on I embraced a naturalistic, materialistic approach. Early on, I rejected dualism because I could not see the need for adding anything extra to explain consciousness. As time goes on, I have watched with fascination as the evidence continues to grow that much of what our brain does is not only unconscious but inaccessible to introspection. The research from perception provides incontrovertible proof that our brain constructs our experiences in a way that is not entirely reliable. When it comes to emotions, it's also clear that these are largely neurological in origin. Based on the current evidence, it appears that signals from the body influence our experience, but the overall experience of emotion appears to be constructed in a way similar to that of other perceptual experiences. I hope that more research will be done on the role of the subcortical circuits that were studied by Jacques Pangsep, but I reject Damasio's claim that emotions are fundamentally different from the other experiences generated by the brain. Otherwise, I'm fairly agnostic regarding the various theories about how the brain generates consciousness. But I do have a few biases. I think that the theory should be non-dualistic and allow for non-human consciousness. I think emotions or some form of value or valence must be incorporated. I also think the theory needs to incorporate the role of embodiment... And the theory has to be consistent with all the information we have about how the brain actually works. It's probably obvious that I reject panpsychism. So I want to mention that if this is a topic that interests you, there's a great book on it called Galileo's Error. I'm blanking on the author's name right now. The author of Galileo's Error was interviewed on Sean Carroll's excellent podcast, Mindscape. Finally, as I look forward to 2020, I anticipate that I will have additional episodes about the neuroscience of consciousness, because I think it's a question we all care about. And I'm actually hopeful that I'm going to be able to interview Dr. Bernard Bears, who was the first proponent of the global workspace theory. I'm also excited about the possibility of turning this series of episodes into an ebook, and I would like to have your feedback at podcast at gmail.com about whether or not you think that's a good idea. Okay, for the few people that are still listening, I want to close by first reminding you that you can also send me feedback besides email, voicemail, speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis, or the Brain Science Podcast fan page, I'd love for you to read, to visit the Brain Science Podcast website, brainsciencepodcast.com, where you can sign up for a free newsletter and get show notes automatically. Before I talk about my plans for 2020, there's a few final reflections. I was really pleased that I was able to create new content every month in 2019. I think each guest made a valuable contribution to our quest to understand how our brains make us human. Now, I only really have two announcements. The first and most important is that in January, I'm going to increase the production of Brain Science to twice a month on the second and fourth Fridays. This is going to be the first time the show has come out twice a month since 2008. So please let me know what kind of content you'd like. Do you want more interviews, more solo episodes, different topics? Also, please note that there's not going to be any increase in the price for the premium subscription, despite the doubling of the transcripts that go along with that. The 50 most recent episodes of Brain Science will continue to be free. The reason that I'm increasing the frequency of brain science to twice a month is I want to take the show to the next level. In order to do this, I n- realize that I need to reach people who do not listen to podcasts. So I'm going to start working on some writing projects in 2020. The first is going to be to create a second edition of the ebook I released back in 2010. I actually hope to have that ready within a few months, and I will keep you posted. Then, as I mentioned a minute ago, I might turn this series on consciousness into a short ebook. And finally, the bigger project that I really want to get going on is to write a more comprehensive book covering some of the key ideas that we have explored over the last 13 years. Finally, I want to thank you if you've helped support the show financially over the last year or years. Many of you have been supporting my work for many years and listening for many years, and I really appreciate that. If you want to support Brain Science financially, just go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations to learn about the choices and pick the one that's best for you. Some of you are no doubt wondering what happened to my intention to pursue professional coaching. The bottom line is that even though I'm going to accept a limited number of clients, I've decided to make brain science my number one priority in 2020. This means I'm also going to be looking for opportunities to guest on other podcasts as well as to do public speaking. So anyone that wants to send me leads or suggest me as a guest to your favorite other podcasts, please do. I'm also looking for listeners who might be interested in helping with the Brain Science Podcast website and especially with social media. So if you'd like to help me grow brain science in 2020, please email me at brainsciencepodcastgmail.com. Thanks again for listening and sharing brain science with others. In between episodes, I hope you will check out my other shows, books and ideas, and grain rainbows. Brain Science is a copyright 2019 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The theme music for Brain Science is Mindfire, written and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.